0: Well, this morning, we have the great delight of encountering one of the most massive texts about Christ in the pages of Holy Scripture. And this is good for us. I can think of a few things better for us in a time like this, in an age filled with chaos, in an age filled with violence in an age in which it appears from our perspective that everything is coming unraveled at the seams. What we need are texts like what we're about to read and see and hear and have preached on that sustain our souls for such a time as this. The text I'm speaking of is Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 through 20. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there to Colossians 1 verses 15 through 20. The book of Colossians, you may or may not know, is profoundly concerned with the supremacy and the superiority of Jesus Christ. This particular church had people infiltrating that were not friendly to the Great Commission. They were not sympathetic with the supremacy of Christ. They had other agendas. While claiming to represent the truth, they in fact brought truths that that challenged the truth at the deepest possible level, namely at who Jesus Christ was. So Paul gets to this portion here in Colossians 1, and he unfolds the staggering, breathtaking resume of Jesus Christ and his supremacy over all things. I begin in verse 15. He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. For him, all things exist for Christ. And he is before all things. And in him, all things in the universe hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Then in everything he might be, notice, preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And notice, through him, at the end of the age, through him to reconcile To himself, all things, whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. What that is right there is a blueprint for stability, for joy, for hope, and a life that puts Christ on display. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Christ, you are the word. Oh, Christ, you are the speech of God in human form. Oh, Christ, how astonishing it is that when you showed up to the planet that you made astonishing claims, astonishing things that would have been blasphemy had you not been who you are. And who you are, Christ, is God. Christ, you were in the beginning, meaning you never had a beginning. You always and forever existed and you were with God, always and forever with God before eternity passed. And not only that Christ, you were God, you are God. Everything that can be said about God can be said about you because Jesus Christ, you are God and all things came into being through you. And everything that exists only came into existence because you brought it into being. And there was nothing that came into being that did not come into being through you. You spoke it into existence. You caused all things to come into existence, including us, O Lord. And how astonishing it is that we see, O Christ, in Colossians 1, that in in you all things hold together. O Lord, you uphold all things by the word of your power. And so, Christ, we come to you with one agenda, with one goal. Oh Lord, that is to see you for the treasure that you are. We come to you, oh Lord, with one goal. Lord, we have many many things that drive us, many concerns which weigh upon us, O Lord. And I just even think in a room, even just this small size, there are a thousand burdens, a thousand difficulties, a thousand troubles and challenges represented here in this room, Christ. And, and I know, Lord, our default response, our default is not to think that what we need precisely in this moment is to see you and hear you through your word. We don't believe that. We have other solutions to which we are looking. We have other man-made solutions to which we are looking. And yet, Lord, being here right now, hearing from your word is exactly what we need. So please, Christ, I plead with you, mediate yourself to your flock through your word. Minister to your people through your word. Manifest yourself to your people through your word. Help us to taste and see that you are good. Help us, O Lord, open our eyes to make the connection that your supremacy over all things is the solution to the deepest problems in our lives. O Christ, what we need is more of you, to see you more clearly to love you more passionately, to be satisfied in you more deeply. Please grant us that gift this morning. Help us to see, Christ, that you are sufficient. You are satisfying. You are supreme. You are sovereign. And you are what we need. I pray for this dear flock, Lord. I pray that you would give them great encouragement great consolation, great comfort. I pray that what they are about to see, what they are about to hear, that they would be a new pair of lenses through which they view the world and everything in it and all the events unfolding in it, Lord. We feel very much, oh Lord, like things are are chaotic and they are, like things are unraveling and they are. And yet, Lord, at the same time, You are in absolute, perfect, sovereign control. And in one sense, from a perspective of heaven, all things are going exactly as planned, and we have you to trust. So, Lord, I pray that you would comfort those who hurt. You would strengthen those who are weak. You would bring back those who are wandering that you would call back those who are flirting with the idea of of walking away from you, drifting in their faith. Those who are discouraged, Lord, I pray that you would give them unbelievable comfort, that this would be an adrenaline shot to the soul filled with your glory, that they would see that their deepest hope and joy is alone found in you. So I pray for Rich as he preaches, oh Lord, that you would use your word through his mouth to sustain us and create in us anew affections for you, Christ, above all things, that we would trust you for who you are. That is the sovereign king who has infinite authority that governs everything that comes to pass. We need you in this moment, so please come to us. Strengthen your servant and strengthen us to hear and listen and apply and be transformed always and only, for the glory of the Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.
1: Well, good morning. It is wonderful to be with you this morning. And if you are visiting with us for the first time, we are uh, glad you've chosen to worship the one true living God with us this morning. And, and if you are joining us uh, online virtually this morning, uh, we are similarly glad you have chosen to be with us, albeit virtually, uh, this morning. We now come to that portion of our service where we open up God's word. And we preach his word. And if you have a copy of your copy of God's word, please open it up. We're in Colossians, as as Jared just read. We're in chapter 1. We're going to be in verse 15 is where we will begin. Now, all scripture speaks of Christ. The Bible, the sacred text, is a book about Christ. In the Old Testament, we see the preparation for Jesus' coming. The earliest chapters of Genesis describe our need for a Savior. They also give us the first promise of the Savior, the seed of the woman. When we get to the Gospels, they present the life and and ministry of Jesus Christ to us. This is a book about Christ. When we get to the book of Acts, we see the early church going out. We see the Gospel going out into the world. This is a book about Christ. And in the epistles, we see how we are to live our lives as followers of Christ. And finally, in the book of Revelation, we see Christ on his throne, reigning as king. This is a book about Christ. In the gospel of Luke, We read about the disciples that were on the road to Emmaus following the resurrection of Jesus. Christ met with them. And it says that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This is a book about Christ. When Philip met the Ethiopian eunuch, On the road to Gaza, the Holy Spirit says Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scriptures, he told the good news about Jesus. This is a book about Christ. But in all of scripture, in all of the 66 books, there is tucked away in a short letter written to a small church perhaps the greatest statement and description of who Christ is, the son of God, creator, head of the church, and savior. And this morning, we're going to see the supremacy of Christ in all things and the sufficiency of Christ. Two great truths we have in this passage. In fact, when Jared was was introducing this text, I thought he was going to begin preaching on this text as he's getting excited about what the text says about Christ. And and our goal this morning is that you would see the supremacy of Christ in all things. You see, that's actually part of our mission statement here, that we prize, portray, and proclaim the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples. That's what the supremacy of Christ is. It is for the joy of all peoples. When you see, when we see who Jesus Christ is, it brings greatest joy that we could ever experience. And and my goal this morning is to somehow get that across, the supremacy of Christ. You see, when we understand the supremacy of Christ, sin we struggle with, gets smaller as Christ gets larger. But we need to see him for who he is. So before we do that, though, I would like to uh, open in prayer. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessing of this meeting. To sing your praise and to open your word, reach out, Lord, and touch your people, and let us hear you speak through your word. And as we come to your oh so precious word, O Lord, we ask for wisdom and for understanding. Open our eyes that we may behold the wondrous things out of your law. Unfold for us the great truths contained in the sacred text. And may your word go forth to have its intended purpose, knowing it will not return empty. May it fill us with great joy and bless us now, O Lord, as you speak to us. And Lord, I pray that you will use your servant, though fallible and weak, and Lord, oh, so greatly flawed, to declare your truths from your word. Let me speak love and truth for your name's sake. Amen. As Jared said this morning, we're in the book of Colossians, and and, uh, let me provide a little, little bit more background to the book of Colossians. See, we think what happened was, When Paul was on his second missionary journey, he spent some time in the city of Ephesus. And he spent time preaching there. And it says that people came from from all over Asia and they would hear him preach, and the gospel was going out. And what we think happened there was at least one man named Epaphras who heard that. And he was from Colossae. And he took the gospel, the message, back to Colossae, and he started a small church. Now Colossae had at one point been a prominent city. However, over time, as other cities grew up and trade routes were developed, Colossae became less and less prominent and it was more of a small, insignificant town by the time we get to the New Testament. And Epaphras was probably one of the leaders in this small church. And By the time we get to A.D. 62, the Apostle Paul was in Rome under house arrest. But conditions in Colossae had become such that a dangerous teaching had arisen that Epaphras thought it was so important he needed to leave Colossae and go find Paul and tell Paul and find out what to do. And so he travels to Rome from Colossae and he finds the Apostle Paul And the Apostle Paul writes this letter. Now, we don't know for certain exactly what the dangerous teaching was that that Epaphras reported. You see, we, we only have one side of the conversation. We have Paul's response in the letter. We don't have the list of complaints or the list of things that were going on. But we have a good idea about this heresy. It appears what happened was at least one, if not more, false teachers arose within the church. And they began preaching a different gospel. This was probably an early beginning of Gnosticism. I'll explain that in a moment. But basically they were saying they were presenting themselves as some sort of spiritual guide. And they probably claimed to have special insight into the spiritual realm. And they began directing the Colossians on how to worship and how to practice Christianity. Like I said, probably an early form of Gnosticism. Gnostics considered themselves to have superior knowledge and they could help lesser Christians attain deeper spirituality. As you can imagine, the heresy centered around Christ. As we see in many heresies, it focused around the deity of Christ. And also that Christ's death was not sufficient for salvation. And in addition, they would say that there must, you must have to worship other spirits or other gods, other beings in addition. You see, Gnosticism arose, and it developed over time. And if you saw from what now, I guess that would be 15 years ago roughly, the movie The Da Vinci Code, when it came out, and it was portraying Gnosticism in there. But basically, th- this, is, this is strange, so, so hang on there with me as I try to explain this in, in a short period of time. But they believed that, that there was a one true God who was unknowable. But they also believed there were many lesser gods. And they called that the Pleroma, the fullness of all the gods. And at one point, one of the lesser gods committed the sin of trying to know the unknowable God. And because of that, she gave birth to the demiurge, who then went on and created physical matter. And this is going to be at the heart of what they do. They they talk about its dualism. And one of the the dualism things they're talking about is anything that's material is evil, and only spirit is good. And so they're going to struggle with Christ. Because Christ came incarnate, he had a physical body. And and how do you have a physical body if all things material are evil? Because only in their mind, spirit was good. And so the Gnostics had their special knowledge, their special wisdom that they wanted, uh, that they said was required for Christianity. If you wanted to be saved, their, their method of salvation included this special knowledge and Christ alone would not be sufficient. Now, Paul's response to this is kind of fascinating. He doesn't immediately begin to attack the Gnostic beliefs. Now, eventually he will, and he talks about things, and he talks about in uh, chapter 2, and he talks of Christ. He says, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and that's in Christ And he says in chapter two again, verse eight, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world. And he would say, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on about visions and such. So Paul will address that, but the way he begins his letter is fascinating. What he wants to do is, Give them such a firm foundation of who Christ is that all this false teaching just falls away. And he lays out what what is described by some as the great Christ hymn. And and scholars believe that that what we read this morning in Colossians 1, 15 through 20 was actually a portion of an early hymn sung in the church. That's exciting to me to think that we can go back almost 2,000 years. And those are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is what they were singing. This is how they were worshiping the living Christ. And we can see those words. But Paul begins by explaining who Christ is. You see, if you want to overcome false teaching, you better have the right stuff. You better have the truth. In other words, how are you going to recognize when you see the false teaching and he gives a beautiful description of the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. I'm going to read the text again. And this refers to Christ in verse 13. It says the beloved son of God, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. To begin, let me explain this word firstborn. That can be a stumbling block for some. In fact, in the early church, a man named Arius would take texts like this, and he would proclaim that Jesus Christ was a created being in fact, he had this cute little saying in Greek that there was a time when Christ was not, when he didn't exist. And he would take this, this text and, and others and he would say, Christ had to have been a created being. He is not the eternal son of God. And people have gotten that wrong. So we need to look at this word. We need to understand this word because this word is used twice in this little passage and explains some great truths. The word can, and at certain times in Scripture, does mean firstborn chronologically. In fact, if you go to the Gospel of Luke, and it says there, uh, regarding Mary, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. And this is speaking of the birth of Jesus. And he was the firstborn of Mary. And it can mean chronologically firstborn. But more times in Scripture, far more times, it refers to rank or position. If we look back in the Old Testament, being the firstborn son had privileges with it. Unless of course you're an Egyptian and it's the 10th plague time, then not so much. But, but being the firstborn had privileges that you received more of an inheritance. You, had, you would eventually take over your father's uh, business or, or over his belongings and over his staff and you would, you would govern it all. That was given to the firstborn son, and there was a rank or a position with being firstborn. And we see that word commonly used in the New Testament and even in the Old Testament. In fact, if, you talk, if we look at Exodus 4.22, you don't have to turn now, I'll read it, but Israel is called God's firstborn son. Now, they were not the first people that were created or born, but they had a special place in God's sight among all the nations. They were the firstborn. They were the highest ranking They they were number one in that sense. In Psalm 87, Psalm 89, I'm sorry, God says of the Messiah, I also shall make him my firstborn. And then he explains what that means the highest of the kings of the earth. So, what does it mean to be the firstborn? That is the place of highest honor, that is the top rank, that is supreme. When it says in here that Christ is the firstborn of all creation, that means Christ is supreme over all creation. When he is the firstborn of those of the dead, risen from the dead, that means that he is the greatest of all. So he is not not talking chronologically, and we would need to have the right interpretation. And if you're still unsure, we have the immediate text around it because it says that, By him, all things were created. And I love we looked at at John chapter one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Christ is the firstborn of creation, meaning he is supreme. Christ is the creator. And as creator, He has privilege. He has honor. The highest honor belongs to him. He is supreme. And this is important as we see this word used in this passage because it's going to tell us that Christ is the greatest of uh, of all creation. He's Lord of all creation, I should say. And if he is Lord of all creation, what does that mean for us? that means we have to obey him. If he is indeed Lord, then we are subject to him, but we can bring him honor and glory. So it says in in verse 15, Christ is the image of the invisible God. Now the word image does convey what we think it would be like a picture or representation. In fact, in the, in the ancient Greek or in the biblical Greek, there is an example where it's used that way, where a, a man had written to his father and he apparently had a little picture painted of himself and he sent that along and he said, this is, this is an image of me that I'm giving to you. And he sent that along. But this word has even more meaning when we talk about image. Christ is the image of the invisible God. God it has to be more than just a physical likeness or a picture. How do you paint a picture of an invisible object? And even if you were, how would you convince me that that's the object you're talking about and not another invisible thing? I wouldn't know. This word also means that it is the fullness of character, the image of God, the invisible God. This is what the invisible God is like. Now, Christ lived to make God known to the world. He also came to die for our sins, but he came to reveal the Father to us. And again, in John chapter one, we read, it says that no one has seen God, but Christ has made him known. Part of Christ's mission was to come and to reveal the Father to us. And did you see how Gnosticism was setting itself up to go against Scripture, saying that there was an unknowable God? And yet, the truth is that Christ came to reveal God to us. In Hebrews chapter 1, it says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And again, This is an incredible description of Christ. He is God and therefore he can perfectly represent God to us. He's the image of the invisible God because he is God. Like I said, this is also a refutation of Gnosticism that taught that there was a true God and lesser gods. And Paul is is making certain that they understand Christ is the one true God and not a lesser God. He is the image of the invisible God because it says he created all things. And then Paul expands that, he amplifies that. What do I mean all things in heaven and on on earth? Visible and invisible, all things. And because they pointed to uh, a worship of angels, he lists whether dominions, or I should say whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, and those are common descriptions of angels in the angelic realm. So whether even those, they're all created by Christ. There is no one greater. And just by studying creation, kind of from a scientific point of view, we get a glimpse of the power and the knowledge and the wisdom and the creativity of our creator God. In the night sky, you can look up and look out at the great and wondrous creation of the universe and see the stars that are out there and consider just the sheer size of the universe. But shrink that down and say, what is just the sheer size of our own galaxy? We look out and you can see The Milky Way galaxy, maybe not here in the Metroplex, but if you go out where there's less light from the city, you can see the Milky Way on a clear night through there. Scientists estimate that there are 100,000 million stars in the Milky Way galaxy. Now, some of these stars are pretty incredible. Our own sun, the nearest star has a diameter 100 times the size of the earth, which is amazing. The largest known star in the Milky Way is estimated to be about 2,000 times the size of our own sun. And while our sun and light takes over eight minutes for light to travel from the sun to the earth, on this largest star that we know of, it takes more than eight years just for light to travel around its equator. That's how big it is. That's how large. That's enormous. Created by Christ. He created all the stars. He created the Milky Way. And they estimate there are hundreds of millions of galaxies in the universe. Christ is supreme over all. When we talk about the supremacy of Christ, think about that. And then we can look closer at home and we see the beauty of creation. We see the vast biology that that God and Christ has created. We see it in whether it's in the the sea with the different uh, creatures of the sea or on land. It's vast. He is an amazing creator God. And he is supreme above all creation. And that is just what we can see. Imagine, those galaxies existed before we had telescopes that could see them. And again, to refute Gnosticism, all things were created by Christ. And it says at the end of verse 16, all things were created through him and for him. He is not only The great creator. He is the goal of creation. All things were created by Christ, through Christ, and we'll see that all things are sustained by Christ. But all things point to an end, to a goal, that they are for Christ. They are to bring glory to Christ. All of creation is to bring glory to Christ, and that means us too we're given glimpses in scripture where we see how mankind seems to be the only creature that doesn't get it. We look in the book of Jonah, for example. Jonah, a great prophet of God, is commanded to go and preach to the Ninevites. And what does he do? He goes the other way. And yet we see creation. It says God appointed that a great wind would come up and a great storm. And what did it do? A great storm arose. And when Jonah was cast into the sea, he appointed a great fish to come and swallow Jonah. And what did the great fish do? It obeyed the creator God and it swallowed Jonah. And then God appointed that that great fish should vomit him out. And what did the great fish do? He vomited him out. He appointed The hot east wind. He appointed a vine to grow. He appointed a worm to attack the vine. And all of creation obeyed. Who disobeyed? God's prophet. And we find ourselves in a similar situation where all of creation is obeying God and we are the ones who disobey. He existed before all things. He pre existed creation itself. He's outside of his own creation. And he sustains it. All things are held together by him, it says. In him, all things hold together. And since this is all true, how should we live? How should this truth impact our lives? If Christ is supreme, and he is, how do we respond to that? Doesn't it make sense that if Christ is the creator, the sustainer, and that all things culminate with worship of him, our lives should reflect this truth? In Romans 12, we're called to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, which is our spiritual worship, or as some translations read, our reasonable service. If all these things are true about Christ, what's reasonable on our part? That we would obey him, that we would honor him, that we would worship him. Now after looking at Christ's supremacy in all of creation we look at his supremacy in the church made up of little new creations and that would be us because we are new new creations in Christ Now there are many metaphors in scripture to describe the church We are described as a family a kingdom of priests a vineyard a flock and a bride One of the descriptions, though, which is fascinating, is that we are described as a body, (laughs) a living organism, united by the living Christ. And Christ is the head of this body. He controls every part of it. He gives life and direction. He's not some sort of angel that is there to serve the church. He is the head of the church, and that's what Scripture tells us. And it says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. Do you see the argument that's being made? He's the head of the church. And again, we see that word firstborn. The firstborn from the dead. That means Again, he holds that position of highest honor, and he is preeminent over all. He is supreme, over all. That means he must be uh, supreme and have first place in all aspects of our lives. He needs to be supreme and preeminent in our families. He needs to be supreme and preeminent in our marriages. He must be preeminent in all of our professions, in our mission, in our ministry, even our matters of intellect, what we think about. He needs to be preeminent in how we spend our time, preeminent in our conversations. Preeminent in our entertainment and pleasure. Preeminent in all that we do, what we watch, what we participate in, the music we listen to, and in our worship. Christ is supreme over all. And what does this look like? Chapter 3 gives us some ideas. Of how we are to take this idea of Christ's supremacy and apply it to our lives. We are to seek the things above, the things of Christ. We are to set our minds on things above. We are to put to death what is earthly. We are to put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. We are not to lie or tell lies. And we are to put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. We are to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts and to let the Word of God dwell in us. That's what it means, and that's what it looks like when Christ is supreme in our lives. That's how we live. And the author here gives kind of a twofold reason for Christ being preeminent in the church. The first one is that Christ is God. It says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is like the mic drop, the boom. Christ is God. He's not a lesser God. He's not anything like that and in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That means that God was pleased to take on humanity. That means the incarnation pleased God. He was fully man and fully God. And do you see the beauty in that? That the, that the creator God would take on humanity, be born as a baby in need, and we see in the in the gospel of Luke that he would grow in stature and wisdom. He had humanity that needed to grow and that pleased him that he would do that. And he had to do that for our behalf. He had to be fully human if he was going to die for our sins. If he was going to save us from our sins, he had to be fully human. And that means all of the other stuff that comes with it. He got tired We know that he suffered greatly at the crucifixion. He felt pain. He wept. All of the things of humanity. He was pleased to take that on because that's what he needed to do to save our souls. It pleased God. And this is why he is supreme in the church. This is why he's preeminent above all things. He is fully God and he was pleased To take on humanity for our behalf. But Christ also deserves supremacy in our lives because of his work for our salvation. Now, this is a a beautiful but theological passage here that uh, talks about reconciliation. And it says, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross. You see, God's ultimate plan for all the universe was to reconcile it to himself through Jesus and through the work of Christ. When the work of creation was finished, God saw all that he made and behold, it was very good. But sin entered the world and it soon marred what was very good. And the fall resulted not only in a tragedy for humans, but it affected all of creation. Sin destroyed the perfect harmony between the creatures and the creator. And now creation was subject to futility. It says that one evidence of this is the second law of thermodynamics which indicates that the universe is losing its usable energy. And if God did not intervene, the university would just use itself up. But we have this word reconcile. And this is a significant, and this is a beautiful descriptive theological term. In fact, John MacArthur says, this is one of the five key words used in the New Testament to describe the richness of salvation. The other words are justification, redemption, forgiveness, and adoption. In justification, the sinner stands before God guilty and condemned. But God declares him righteous. That's justification. Guilty. None of us can say we're not guilty. But because of the work of Christ, we can be declared Righteous. We are redeemed. This is a picture of the sinner standing before God as a slave, but granted freedom because of what Christ has done. We are redeemed people. Word forgiveness. The sinner stands before God owing a great debt that he cannot pay. And God chooses to wipe that debt clean. The debt is paid by someone else. And then we are reconciled. And in reconciliation, we stand before God as his enemy. We are enemies of God. But because of the work of Christ, Because of his death on the cross on our behalf, we are declared to be friends of God. We are reconciled. Do you see the beauty in that? It says we were also adopted where we would stand before God as a stranger. He would not know us. But he would choose to make us his child because of the work of Christ. That is something only Christ could do. We could not do that for ourselves. This is why Christ is supreme. This is why he's preeminent. But this passage gives us even a little deeper understanding of this reconciliation. Because it means to change or to exchange. We were enemies with God And yet, we are going to be made friends of God. And yet, this is a different word here used in Colossians, a compound word. And that compound word intensifies the meaning of reconciliation. It means it's thoroughly, completely, or totally reconciled. Have you been reconciled with another person, and yet you always feel there's something not quite right in the relationship? Here, when we are reconciled to God through Christ, it's complete. To be called a friend of God only by the work of Christ, only by what he has done. Christ was not just another spiritual uh, being, as the Gnostics would say. And Paul defends that Christ's death was sufficient to reconcile all people to God. So what do we learn from this? What's our takeaway? One of my fears of preaching this was it's a common passage and people know it. And because they're so familiar with it, how do you preach it? Well, one of the things we we need to take away from this is to refute false teaching. And we must be well-grounded in the truth to do this. And notice how Paul, again, began his letter by reminding the saints of the great truths about Christ. That's where he started. Let's talk about who Christ is. And this is more than just refuting false teaching. We must be able to identify the false teaching to be able to refute it, refute it. And this is what we see in the world today, even the subtlety in false teaching. It's not that people want to come and get rid of Jesus. That's too obvious. They're going to offer Jesus plus. So they're going to come and say, okay, yeah, you can, you can keep the G, but you got to add this into it as well. And that's certainly what the Gnostics were were. We're saying and suggesting it's Jesus plus. Do these other things, have this special knowledge. But even in today, here, people want us to take on other things. Jesus plus, and this is not what this is about. When we are reconciled to God, we are completely reconciled, there's no plus that needs to be added. This is, uh, like I said, just as common today. But the claims of Christ and the claims in Scripture are exclusive. Jesus said that he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through him. We cannot add to the gospel. We cannot add to Scripture. Christ alone saves. No special knowledge or ritual. We are saved by the blood of Christ, as gruesome as that may sound. Think about our own mission statement here at Christ Community Bible Church. We exist to prize, portray, and proclaim the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples. If we are going to prize the supremacy of Christ, we need to know the supremacy of Christ. The way we know the supremacy of Christ is through the Scriptures, Christ is revealed in the Scriptures. But moreover, there is a power in the word of God to change lives. There's a power in the word of God that we can really see Christ for who he is. We need to hold fast to scripture and believe it does have the power to change lives because it is the very word of the Lord. The same God who created the universe by speaking it into existence has given us his word contained in the Holy Bible. And because it is the very word of God, it can and it does change lives. So how do we become well-grounded in this truth? By the reading, the study, the meditating on the word of God. And by the way, if any of you would like to know how to do that or how to do that better than you are now, any and all of the elders would love to discuss that with you and to help you. We treasure the word of God because it does have the power to change lives. And the second thing we should learn and embrace is the supremacy of all Christ in all things. And this is more than just mere intellectual knowledge. I remember long ago, I had a conversation with a friend in college and we were discussing Christ of all things. Now, he was not unknowledgeable. He knew of Christ, and he knew a lot about Christ. And in fact, really nothing I shared with him was new to him, but his response back to me was new to me. And he said, I understand exactly who Jesus Christ is. I understand exactly what the consequences of sin are, and I know what the Bible says about someone like me who rejects Christ. He said, but you got to understand, I don't want to give all this up. He preferred his sin. I was shocked by that. He knew that if he was saved, his life would be changed. He knew that if he was saved, he would begin to hate the sinful things, the very things he clung to, the very things he thought he enjoyed. He knew that by the word of God and by Christ indwelling, he would begin to hate those. And that was his sticking point. He said he liked his sin and he didn't want to have to give all of that up because it brought him pleasure. I did not do a very good job of explaining Christ to him because you see, following Christ, obeying Christ, Realizing he is supreme over all brings the greatest joy to our lives. There is no greater joy than serving the risen king. We read in the pages of scripture who he is. He revealed the father, but we see who Christ is. Go back to this word reconcile. We were enemies to God, but through the blood of Christ, we were made to be friends with God. We were reconciled. There is no greater joy. But we are to remember, this is the Christ who made all things. People though, will seek after these material things that were made and they think that will make them happy. Instead, we can have the one who is a creator, who made everything we know, everything we see and things we don't know about or we see. So how do we embrace the supremacy of Christ in all things? We learn to trust. We learn faith. We grow in courage and boldness. We keep our eyes fixed on him so that no matter what the circumstances in our life that surround us, we have confidence to live for him even a world that is hostile to Christ, we can have that confidence because he is supreme over all. And remember that Christ himself said, if the world hates us, we must remember it hated him first. Let us pray. Holy Father, we are again confronted by the relevance of your word, its power and its clarity pray that you would give us a clear understanding of the supremacy of Christ so we may live our lives reflecting his majesty. Father, and by your spirit, we enable us to live as you've called us to live. Help us to choose this day to be committed to your ways of righteousness, to cling to your word, and to run the race you have set before us. We pray all of this through the Son and by your spirit. Amen.
0: You know, that text is proof that the secret to thriving in the Christian life is not to think less deeply about Christ, but to push ourselves deeper than ever into who Christ is. That the secret of our joy, the secret of our satisfaction is not to have ambiguous, non-theological thoughts about Christ, but evermore to push ourselves into, into the specificity of who Jesus Christ is. And Colossians 1 is absolutely the place to start. So Rich, thank you. Thank you for exalting Christ, for putting him on display for the treasure that he is. That's what we need. we have a a lot going on at christ community we are an increasingly busy church in a good way um, and we really want to be a church that uh, provides what you need to thrive in the christian life one of those things being is that we offer a number of resources here. Uh, we understand that um, that a truly healthy church is a church that thinks right thoughts about who God is, that a healthy church is a theological church. That's why we offer these resources. Uh, Books of the month um, are, are, are very timely at this moment. Uh, one you see there is called The Gathering Storm. This is really a um a, a cultural analysis into the things that are happening right now and so all of the hot button issues right now, everything that is political, everything that is that is controversial is addressed in that book and what are the what are the anti-biblical, uh, influences that led to these things being uh, prominent in discussion today. So if you want to uh, know how to diagnose the culture in a biblical way and even have a biblical answer to the things going on in the culture, the gathering storm is a, is a great place to begin. We need to be cultural analysts in our own way. It's a means to evangelism. The reason why we have these two books in particular is because we want to help you engage the people with, that you interact with, the lost people that you interact with every single day with truth. The other one, I talked about this before, what is your worldview Uh, uh, Again, I I mentioned this before. If you remember those uh, choose-your-own-adventure books as a kid, uh, where at the bottom of the page you could choose to go either here or there, and that would take you to different paths of the story, that's what this is. It's a choose-your-own-adventure book, but talking about worldviews. So you could take Buddhism, and it gives gives a summary about Buddhism, and at the bottom it'll say, to see where Buddhism will lead you, turn here or to reconsider your beliefs about Buddhism, turn here and then you can go to one of those places and it will lead you to the inevitable end of where those beliefs go. So really, really great tool, very small and it's, it's really designed to be a way to, you, to engage and interact with lost people, which is what we should and must be doing. So those are uh, each $10 um, and they're available out there. The uh, second thing that I want you to know is that we are continuing to have small groups meeting Uh, If you want to feel connected to a church, this is really one of the best ways to do it. We have what we call here redemptive relationships, which is just a kind of a snazzy way to talk about all that the Bible describes, what our relationships should be like in the local church and what our relationships should be like is, is we are mediating Christ to one another. We are encouraging one another. We are doing the one another's to one another's. And so how the Christian life is designed to work is that I need you to grow, for me to grow. I need For me to grow, I need you. And for you to grow, you need me. So your spiritual growth is my priority. My spiritual growth is your priority. You've heard this all before, but, but the, application, the application to that is joining a small group. In the bulletin that you should have uh, has all of the small group information there. We really encourage you to be a part of that. And uh, was that the last of them? Only two this week? Well, would you look at that? Um, Oh, uh, one thing too, uh, Bible studies as well. So there are small groups and Bible studies. We have a couple things going on. there On uh, Wednesday nights, there is the um, um, Quieting a Noisy Soul Bible Study, and there is the Book of Joshua Bible Study. Those are both for ladies. So if you're looking for a place to connect and to grow in the depths of God's Word, those are great opportunities. Information in the bulletin. So, uh, lots of things going on. Well, let's stand together and let's close in a benediction. May Jesus Christ, who is the Word, who never had a beginning, who caused all things to come into existence in whom is life, who is the true light, who is the Messiah, who is the bread of life, and the way and the truth and the life and the resurrection and the life. May he supply all the power and all the pleasure you need to live a life that puts him on display for the all-satisfying treasure that he is. You're dismissed. His mercy is more, stronger than darkness, new every
1: more our sin.